In the name of God, who is love, amen. Please have a seat. Though my entire family has always disbelieved me and discredited the fact, I still maintain and would ardently insist that I can recollect with a pretty good measure of vivid clarity the third day of my existence on this earth. <laughs> I was born on August 11th, 1983 in the midst of Hurricane Alicia, a category three storm that lashed the coast of Galveston, Texas before making its way inland to Houston where I was reared. And in my recollection, that third day of my existence on this planet, I was brought home from the hospital by my beloved parents. And I can remember being cradled by my mother in this darkened, storm-sheltered hallway, the power all gone out, and seeing my father standing at a pane of sliding glass that looked out onto our patio, shaking his head staring out, out into the rain and saying, when is it going to end? My brother and father, who are here in the congregation this morning, have always said that there's absolutely no way that an infant could remember his third day of existence on this earth. Neuroscience also tells us that the more we access a memory, the more we tend to warp and distort it. And when I've gone back to do research, I have discovered, much to my dismay and dejection, that, in fact, Hurricane Alicia made landfall on August 15th. <laughs> so there was no way, much as I would have loved it, for me to sort of mythologize this moment of my birth, this grand storm sort of announcing my arrival into the world. Though I'll still proudly say I was born in the four pangs of that storm. I think that my tendency to sort of romantically inject this moment of my, my arrival on the planet with so much significance is actually something that's pretty normal for us to do as human beings. We tend to mythologize the more consequential moments of our life, both collectively as a cultural and our overall history and, in, and individually within our biographies. We tend to want to mark certain moments as especially consequential, meaningful, even sacred, and counterdistinct from the more mundane days that we live out week in and week out. And in thinking about this tendency, I was, I've been puzzling over the question of mythology, our tendency to mythologize. I've always loved myths. I was an English major in college and a classics minor. And I think in part, I chose those majors because of my love for mythology. I loved the Greco-Roman myths especially, these stories of the gods coming down to earth and masquerading as mortals, and the possibility that at any moment we could turn a corner and find ourselves face to face with the divine. I spent time in college reading all the different scholars of mythology, people like Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and J.R.R. Tolkien. 
And when I try to wrap my head and heart around what it is about mist that can be so powerful for us as human beings, the most helpful guide I've found is the scholar C.S. Lewis, who was actually a professor of Renaissance poetry at Oxford before converting to Christianity and then writing the Narnia Chronicles, so beloved to so many of us. And this is what C.S. Lewis says about the power of myth. He says that what flows into us from myth is not truth per se, but what he calls reality. And he says there's a difference between the two. He says that truth is statement that's about facts, things that actually happen. Reality is something deeper, perhaps we'd say more spiritual. And reality is the thing that facts and truth ultimately can point to. And especially when I approach the Bible, I find that having this sort of tension or balance, this negotiation between truth on the one hand and reality is especially helpful. Of course, there are some people who would say that the Bible is a literal record of truth and fact, that it faithfully reports factual reality from throughout human history, from how the world was formed and had its origin to how God as Jesus, God incarnate, moved upon the earth. But from a sort of literary critical perspective, the Bible is really a library of texts that was written by a variety of Greek and Hebrew-speaking individuals across the, source of, across the course of dozens of centuries. There is some actual historical reporting in the Bible, but there's also poetry and song and prophecy. And then we have the miracles of Jesus. If we look at a story like today, Jesus walking on the water, what are we supposed to make of this myth that we've received? Do we take it as historically factual or as trafficking in some deeper reality that's meant to enhance and augment the way that we live our lives as people of faith seeking to embody love? Now, for a quick aside, I just want to say that I'm sort of on the side of miracle. I really want to preserve the possibility that something like the miracles described in the Bible were possible for someone like Jesus, God incarnate. And we all know from our contemporary news cycle, these kind of stories of people like moms who are able to lift cars with superhuman strength or run at a superhuman speed to save one of their children that are in peril. Are there stories of monks who are able to raise or lower their body temperature dozens of degrees or even levitate? So I kind of like want to hold to the possibility that such miracle is, um, is something that might be possible. But I don't know if it's actually important for us to argue over whether Jesus actually worked on water for this story, for this myth, to have a consequential power for us as people seeking to live in deeper connection to God's reality of love. So let's look at this story a little bit more closely to see what it might have to teach us about how to live in connection with this deeper reality of God's love and presence in our lives. So at the beginning of the story, Jesus sort of withdraws in meditation. He dismisses his disciples and sends them out across the Sea of Galilee. 
And I kind of imagine Jesus at this moment is like at his first, at his very most human, perhaps kind of like at the end of his rope just for that moment. I mean, Jesus has been moving through the world, healing people, preaching good news. In the passage right before, he turned a couple uh, loaves of bread and fish into a meal for 4,000 people. And I kind of think he's like experiencing a little bit of burnout. Um, people have been like pressing on him. They've been pursuing him. Maybe it's uh, he's experiencing a little bit of what we call in the helping professions some compassion fatigue. And so he just needs to withdraw and take a beat, take a breath on his own, reground himself in this reality of God's love. So he sends his disciples on ahead of him. But he knows there's work to do. And so there he goes out toward him, walking on the waves. And when he approaches the boat, it's almost like, comical in my reading of it it sort of feels like phantasmagoric like something out of Shakespeare's plays like Hamlet or Macbeth here he comes on the water they think they've seen a ghost and they are terrified understandably Jesus speaks peace upon them calms their fears and then we've got that vignette with Peter amazing, beautiful, impulsive Peter who says, Jesus, if you are truly who you say you are, invite me out onto the waves so that I can embolden myself to walk in this amazing way with you. Of course, Peter gets out there and he realizes the severity of the situation and he starts to sink. And then he calls out and says, Jesus, save me. Jesus catches him up, takes him to the boat, and then they proclaim, truly you are the son of God. So what do we need to make about this story, about the factual truth that it relates and this deeper reality of God's love and, and our effort to sort of seek out God's truth in the living of our lives? Well, when I try to read the stories of the Bible, these kind of myths, I found that one of the most helpful ways to look at such stories is kind of in the way that I would look at one of my own dreams and try to puzzle through it. So in dream interpretation, there are a couple ways of going about it. On the first and most kind of simple level, we just like identify with someone, some protagonist in the story, and try to see what we might have to puzzle out from its meaning. For example, I relate so profoundly with the character of Peter. I know what it's like to feel this kind of exuberance and gusto for life. If I see a mentor of my mind try to climb up a mountain or wade across a stream, I'm going to dive right out there, sometimes not quite calculating the risk. And so I can take comfort in the fact that there's actually a God who would be present to me to offer this sort of saving rescue if I most need it. But that's not the only way of interpreting our dreams. In fact, people like Freud say that in our dreams, every single person who's interacting and having this experience represents an aspect of our psyche. So we can sort of toggle back between the different people depending on our psychological or emotional need at the moment. If I'm feeling especially scared, I might identify with those disciples huddled together, fearful in that boat. If I'm feeling buffeted by the storms of life, ones that are external or more within, I can take comfort in knowing that we have a God who will calm the storms of my heart and imbue a sense of peace. I can identify with Peter. I can identify with the storm even. But I think ultimately, as people of faith who would be followers of Jesus, 
ultimately we're supposed to identify with Christ. And to me, this kind of feels a little audacious. I mean, isn't Christ somehow completely distinct from us? Should we really be identifying with Jesus Christ, the sort of Lord of Lords, the Son of God? But even in our baptismal covenant, there's a line we promise to seek and serve Christ in all people. In Paul's letters, we're told that Christ dwells within us. And I think that truly, especially now that Jesus is ascended to heaven, we are the only way that God has to move and work through the world. We literally are Christ's hands and feet and heart and face. We are the ones that walk to one another in the midst of life's storms to calm those seas and to calm the storms of fear within one another's hearts. And we even are the ones who reach down and, re and rescue one another when it seems like we're threatening to sink down in the waves. There's this really interesting moment in the story where Jesus call Peter calls out to Jesus and says, save me. And I don't know about you, but we may all have some different connotations with that terminology of being like a saving presence in the world. I know that growing up in the deep south, my sort of association with saving people within the church world was like a little bit more evangelical. Saving people meant bringing people to Jesus and somehow kind of like converting them into um, a, a statement of faith where they accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And ultimately, that kind of whole formulation was about giving us security and safety in the afterlife so that we would dwell with Jesus forever and ever until the end of time. But when Jesus talks about salvation, I think he has something very different in mind. For Jewish rabbis living in the first century, the whole idea of um, a hell of a place of eternal torment and heaven is a place of eternal bliss wasn't even really on the table. Jewish rabbis in the first century had a very kind of nebulous and fuzzy idea of the afterlife. And for Jesus, when the idea of salvation is discussed, it really means embodying and bringing in this new reality or realm of God's love and justice for all people here and now. You all with me here? Can I get an amen? amen. All right. We, friends, are meant to be that sort of a saving presence for others. I'm kind of a language nerd because of my love for poetry, and I love the fact that the word salvation, if you look at it etymologically, actually goes back to a Latin word, salvus, which means health or wholeness. It's the word from which we get salve, like the salve or balm that we put upon a wound. So if we're saving people, if being a saving presence in the work is what we're all about, what Jesus is inviting us into, we don't have to worry about having the right theological formulations, about convincing someone of anything, about bringing people into the fold or about who's outside of it. All we have to do is be a little bit of salve, a little bit of a balm of healing and wholeness for those people in our life whose needs we encounter. And y'all, we can all do that in such little, simple ways each and every day. We can visit someone who's lonely. We can provide some encouragement for someone who's distressed or struggling with depression. 
We can even just spread a little bit more kindness, a little bit more patience within our own family systems, our places of work. And when we do that, we're being that saving presence, that balm to this wounded world, trying to find its way toward this vision of love and liberation that Jesus preached. On Friday, I turned 40. And on Tuesday, my daughter Helen turns two years old. And I feel like in 40 years of accumulated life experience and education, I, sometime, I somehow still am not as close to living into this way of being connected to God's deeper reality as my two-year-old daughter is. I mean, I find myself so often huddled in fear, just like those disciples on that boat, or rushing into something impulsively or compulsively like Peter. I find myself worrying about the future or stewing over resentments and regrets from things in my past, things done and left done. But Helen, Helen is pure presence. If she's angry with something in the present moment, you're going to know it. If she's delighted with something in the present moment, you are going to know it. She seems just connected with this deeper way of being in the world in pure awe and wonder. A few weeks ago, we took her to Music on Main Street, this sort of concert series up in Victor, Idaho. And Helen was a sort of case study in God-like awe and wonder. Even in the midst of a sandstorm, and I'll have to tell you, we also saw Caitlyn Jenner there, which was pretty cool. Even in the midst of a sandstorm, Helen is tearing it up, dancing with the older kids in front of the stage, running around, stealing people's blankets, basically creating a bunch of sacred chaos for me and her mother, Gracie, to try to, try to navigate and, and wade our way through. But afterwards, we'd had such a good time. We're driving back over the pass. We've loaded her up. It's about 1030 at night, which is three hours past her bedtime. Helen's kind of in a state of delighted delirium. There in the back seat, and I can't remember who it was, either Grace or I just kind of exclaimed, wow, it's pretty dark out there. And Helen got caught in a sort of like rinse cycle feedback loop, just repeating over and over again, it's pretty dark. It's pretty dark out there. It's pretty dark out there. It's pretty dark. She probably said that phrase 300 times by the time we got to the valley floor. We always do this routine of bath, books, bed to put her to sleep. And even in the bathtub, she picked up one of these plastic dolls, which she tends to steal from the nursery every Sunday, and I've got to bring back every Monday morning. She picked up one of these dolls and kind of moved the bubbles off its eyes and just said to the doll, it's pretty dark out there. <laughs> It's pretty dark. <laughs> and even though she was just delighting in learning this new phrase, I couldn't, couldn't help but think there's a little bit of an existential register to what this girl's saying. She's wise beyond her years. Because the truth is, like according to the truth, the facts, it is pretty dark out there. There are times that we can feel there's a real darkness out there and maybe in here as well. That can be the factual truth. But the reality is that God's love is always here. Coming out to us on those waves to meet us, to calm our storms, to embolden us to get out of the boat and take a risk. 
and to be that source of saving grace so we can help continue and co-author this myth into something more beautiful, more loving, loving, and more liberating than anything we've imagined. Amen.